Morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. All right. Glad to see you guys are here and, and healthy today. Um, if you're a visitor with us, I want to let you know a little bit about how we normally preach. And so here at Crosspoint, our normal pattern is we take a book of the Bible and then we just preach through it uh, by, by chapter or by paragraph, just depending on how long it is and, and the content. Um, but we walk through just a book of the Bible and just study what it says and what it means to us. And so um, today we're, we're in the middle of the book of Zechariah. So I know for a lot of people, it's probably a little bit of an unfamiliar territory. Um, so just let me give you a, a quick recap and maybe a reminder, even if you have been here the last few weeks. So the book of Zechariah um, was written at a time in Israel's history when things were not going so well. So zoom out a little bit. You have what's known as the Davidic kingdom, where King David was on the throne. And at that time, Israel was one of the most powerful nations, if not the most powerful nation on the planet. It was kind of like their, their heyday, their glory days. Well, that didn't last very long. Um, they turned their back on the Lord. They weren't following him. They were worshiping other gods, doing different things like that. And as part of their discipline, God brought another nation, Babylon, in to uh, attack them, to destroy the city of Jerusalem and take them away into exile. And so they've been in exile, but there was this promise given that that exile would only last about 70 years and that they would be sent back to rebuild Jerusalem. So all that has basically happened at this point. They have come back. Um, they've relayed the foundation of the temple. They're beginning to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. And they get discouraged because there are some other nations, kind of like their neighbors, that don't necessarily have direct authority over them, but still pose a threat, who have said, we want you to stop that. And so they've, they've stopped. They've said, okay, they've gotten scared. And so what happens is Zacharias shows up, and he has this vision from the Lord, actually a series of visions, um, that he then relays to God's people that encourages them, hey, don't be dismayed and fearful by your neighbors who are telling you to stop. Continue to rebuild just as God has instructed us to do. Um, and so in Ezra, which is kind of a historical account of what was happening, where Zechariah is just account of Zechariah's prophecy given to them during this time, Ezra chapter 6, 14, this is the effect of Zechariah's prophecy that had on the people. It says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. So that's what we're reading right now was this, these prophecies that Zechariah gave to the people of Israel, which encouraged them to continue the work and finish building the temple. So today's text is, a, is one vision from Zechariah chapter 3. Verse 1 says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. So what you have here is kind of a courtroom scene, all right? So if you can just imagine this with me, you've got Zechariah standing here on one side of the courtroom. You can imagine God up at the front as the judge. Um, and then you've got over here next to him, Satan, or what is called here the accuser, who is standing here in this court pointing a finger at Joshua, the high priest, and accusing him. Why is he accusing him? What is he accusing him of? Well, we see that in verse 3. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So Joshua is standing here as the high priest, and his, you can imagine his clothes, maybe just imagine a, a white robe or a tunic or something like that, but it's just covered 
and filth. It's got dirt on it. It's, it's muddy. It's nasty. And Satan is sitting here accusing him, saying he's not worthy to be the high priest. He's not worthy to stand before you and serve in this role. Look at him. He's filthy. His garments are soiled. So we have to zoom out a little bit and imagine what was going on at this time. Think about the gap left by the temple, right? The temple had such a prominent role in especially the religious life of God's people at the time, and it was destroyed. They had rebuilt the foundation, but that's about it, right? Imagine just like a slab, right? There's hardly, there's no temple. There's nothing to go to to perform the, um, the sacraments and the, um, the sacrifices that, that, that God's people were so tied to. Think about what was in the temple. You have like the Holy of Holies where the Ark of Covenant resided. Outside of that, you have like the golden lampstand and the bread of the, or the table with the bread of the presence. And um, you had the, the altar of incense. You had all these things that the priests would, would go into this space and utilize these things to kind of make intercession on behalf of the people. But they're all gone, right? But those things are no more. They've been carried off. They've been taken away. They don't have those things. The only thing they have is this one bronze altar that's set outside the temple. It says that they had rebuilt that at this point. And another thing that's missing as far as God's people's ability to relate to him, to come before them, for the priest to intercede on the people's behalf, they need all these things, but they don't have them. Another thing they don't have is the high priestly garments. And so if you look in the book of Exodus, there's a very detailed description of what the high priest was to wear. And so the high priest would, once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the deepest part of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was and make intercession on behalf of the sins of the people. That was his job, to represent the people to God. Um, But in order to do so, in order to enter, it was kind of considered to be that close to the presence of God, he had to do these, wear these certain things to make himself pure and holy that represented what he was doing and why he was able to be there. So I've got this um, graphic on the screen so we can walk through this. I'm not going to get too far into the, into the weeds here, but just to look at it at a, at a glance. So you can see if you kind of start with the, um, the bottom layer and go out, right? Um, he's got this white tunic on underneath. And then just on top of that, there's a blue robe. You can see it kind of in the bottom third there. At the bottom of that blue woven robe is a trim of gold. Hanging off of that trim, you've got an alternating series of items, a bell and a pomegranate. So if you look down there, sorry, I keep pointing, y'all can't see this one. If you look up there, you're going to see those little things hanging off. Bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate. So there's different theories about what the bell was. Um, There's the idea that maybe the bell was there to alert um, of the priest's presence coming into the Holy of Holies, and not that God was unaware or needed to be, you know, get his attention, but for them, and their perspective, of to them, for them to understand, this is a very fearful thing, this is a reverent thing, this is a thing where when you go in here, if you don't do it appropriately, you could die, so it's like the bells are kind of a warning, a solemnness to that. Um, there's another theory that um, this is not in the Bible, but it's, it's become a, a common thing that's been taught that the high priest would actually have a, a cord, a rope wrapped around his leg so that the people outside, if they stopped hearing the bells ringing, the assumption would be that um, the holiness of God had overcome him and he had died and so they could drag him out. Now, again, that's not, that's not in our Bible. That's just another theory about that. Um, and then the alter- alternatively, 
other than the bell, there was a pomegranate. And the reason those are on there is because they're delicious. Now, I, I actually, I don't know what the pomegranate was about. There's different theories about what it represents, but um, nothing that's uh, concrete that's worth uh, going into. So um, on top of that, you've got this, this vest, this ephod is what it was called. Um, you can see the different colors. By the way, the, the four colors used in that are the same colors that were used on the curtains and stuff in the tabernacle. So his, his outfit kind of corresponded with the colors um, of the temple. And then right there in his chest, you can see what's called the breastpiece of judgment. What that was is you can see those, um, there's four or three columns, four rows, so 12 stones, 12 different precious gems on his chest. And each one represented a different tribe of Israel. There were the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so you guys, how many of you guys know what your birthstone is? Raise your hand. So, yeah, most people, right? So um, back in the day, Israel, they equated their birthstone not with the month they were born, um, but with which tribe they were in. So that was considered their birthstone. I'm just kidding. I made that up. But, the, but there, was, there really was 12, 12 stones about, about the, the tribes of Israel, and each one would have, they would know probably which stone represented uh, the tribe they were born into. Listen to what Exodus says about that. So it says this, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So you've got those 12 stones, and then you can kind of see there, there's these gold chains coming off that connected the, the, the front part of that to the back part of it. Um, and those gold chains would go from here to here, and then right here on his shoulders, there were two more stones that were made of onyx, and one of them had six tribes of Israel inscribed on the stone, and the other one had the other six tribes inscribed on the other stone. Um, and then if you continue going up, you've got this turban um, made of fine linen, and then around the bottom of it, there's a gold plate with an inscription on it. This is what Exodus says about that. It shall be on Aaron's forehead... And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead, forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So, all these different elements to what he's supposed to be wearing. Okay? As the high priest, that's what Joshua would be expected to wear to equip him and enable him not just to stand before God, but also to serve in his capacity of high priest. But instead, what you have is Satan standing next to him going, look at this guy. He's not, he's not wearing this. He's wearing this filth. He's unable, he's unqualified. This, this completely disqualifies him from serving as the high priest. He's standing there He's making this accusation. He's unworthy to serve. He's unworthy to even stand in this place. And the thing is that one of the things we have to remember about Satan, the accuser, that's the word here used, that he's the accuser, is that a lot of times he doesn't share outright lies with us, right? But he twists and turns the truth. And in this instance, what he's doing is he's sharing a half-truth, right? That statement for him to say, accuse him of being unworthy because he's what he's wearing, he's right. I mean, that. That would be completely unacceptable and inappropriate for Joshua to be covered in filthy garments and try to serve as high priest and enter the temple. So Satan is accusing of this, and from what we can tell, 
Joshua, the high priest, and just imagine Zacharias just over here like a fly on the wall. He's just watching this whole thing, right? As they have nothing to say because he's right. Like what he, where he stands as he is, he's completely unworthy and unable to be able to serve as high priest. But then look what happens in verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So this angel speaks and just says, behold, I've taken this away. So you can just imagine this kind of happening, that he's standing there in filthy garments, and then just at the command of this angel, those garments are taken away, and then those priestly garments that were on the screen are just, he's covered in those. But apparently he doesn't have the turban yet. It's kind of funny, it's the way this reads, it's like Zachariah's over here again. This is his vision. He's just kind of seeing it from above. He's like a fly on the wall. Um, but it's like he gets so excited, he just jumps in the middle of it. And it says in verse 5, And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. I don't know why, but I just imagine like this is all happening. And all of a sudden, Zachariah's like, hey, put a clean turban. They're like, what? Where did this guy come from? Like, let in here. What are you doing here? But he gets, he's like getting excited about what's happening. He says, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So I guess when Zechariah jumped in, the angel's like, Well, all right, man, I guess you got it from here, right? Take it away. So, one thing I want us to realize about this, just an observation, is consider what Joshua did to fix his problem. Nothing, right? There's nothing he could do. He's, he's standing here covered in filth. Like It's painfully obvious that he is completely unworthy to stand before the Lord or serve him in this role. And he just stands there. All the action, all the things being done to make him worthy and holy to come before God are done outside of himself. They're done by God or this angel who is just removing the filth from him and covering him in a righteousness that's not his own. One of the ways we could say that is that he is clothed in an alien righteousness. There's nothing he could do. He has no defense for himself. He has no excuse. He has no remedy. He just stands there while God takes away his filth and makes him holy and equipped to serve in this role. So that's kind of the, the vision. That's what transpires. We're going to walk through it and look at how we are in a similar position as Christians as what we see with Joshua. So we're going to make four observations about that. Number one, like Joshua, we are unworthy to stand before God or serve him on our own merits. When we consider our disobedience and our rebellion before God, it ought to make us feel a little bit like Joshua in that instance, that yes, we, are, we have disobeyed the Lord, we are not worthy of um, his acceptance, of his approval, and certainly not worthy to play a part in his kingdom. I know many of you guys in here are, are doing that. You're serving in the church. Maybe you're on the greeting team, or you help pass out the Lord's Supper, or you're serving in the sound booth, or in the band, or you're leading a small group. Many of you guys are serving in some capacity. Even if you're not a member at our church, maybe you're um, doing things that would seek to further the kingdom of God, sharing the gospel with people, or imparting the teachings of God to your children. 
all those things we do to serve, in and of ourselves, we are completely unworthy to do those things outside of Christ. The Bible teaches that we are dead in our sin, that we are covered in the filth of our rebellion and just unworthy to even stand before God, much less serve him, just like Joshua. In fact, Paul encourages the readers, his, his people he was writing to in the church of Ephesus, to, to not ever forget that fact, to remember that outside of Christ, they were like Joshua, just standing condemned and guilty before God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, he says it this way, and you were dead. Just, just imagine Joshua just like, again, no excuse, no response, just guilty. Just standing there with Satan accusing him, going, Yeah, you're right. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." This is what the Bible teaches about sin, is that every single person outside of Jesus who's ever been born on this earth shares that similar position as Joshua because of our sin and rebellion, standing before God with no good excuse, no remedy, just guilty. But like Joshua, for those of us who place our faith in Christ, we are clothed in an alien righteousness. So that's a, that's a phrase you may have heard of in church before, if you've been in church for a while, is the idea of being clothed in Christ's righteousness or clothed in an alien righteousness. You're not going to see that phrase anywhere in your Bible, but you see it played out in verses like this multiple times. That, that our problem, unlike Joshua, right? I mean, you have to remember that all, these, all the clothes and all the things in the temple, they were all really symbolic. They were provisions that were supposed to be in place for a temporary time until Christ would come and show their, their full meaning, what it all really meant. Because the reality is, like, if you think about your own sin, and imagine like a, a high priest of Israel struggled probably with all the same things in one way or another that you and I do, had the same sins, and yet he's given clothes and told, now you can come into the temple, into God's presence. Well, we know that, like, just those clothes, right, shouldn't be enough to completely cover the sin that resided in his heart and rebellion, right? That ultimately their problem and our problem is way deeper than what we're wearing, right? I mean, I got up this morning, I, I put on this shirt and some nice looking jeans and, and my, my vest, kind of like the priest had, you know, got my vest going. Ultimately, like, our sin is way deeper than clothes, right? It's not something that if we, if we put on enough nice clothes, it all of a sudden makes us worthy to come before God. We get that, that our sin is much, much deeper than that. And that just putting on fancy clothes doesn't make a priest clean and worthy to come before the Lord, that that was symbolic of something else that needed to happen. So, I want us to look at this next um, passage in verses 8 and 9, and it's going to be a lot of a lot of symbols here, um, but we'll walk through them one by one, and it'll be really cool to see how the vision Zechariah was given about 
the problem of sin and how that was going to be solved is fully and finally answered in the person of Jesus in a way that he, there's no way he could have even known what this meant when it was given to him. Um, 3, 8, and 9 says this, Hear now, Joshua, high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on the single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord. So there's three, there's three kind of symbols there, right? You've got a stone. You've got inscribed on that stone a branch or, or a root or a shoot, depending on what your translation says. And then you've got the idea that that stone or that branch has seven eyes, okay? So stone, a branch, and seven eyes. Actually, we're going to start with the branch. The branch is a, is a word that was used several times in the Old Testament regarding a prophecy of the branch of David or the root or shoot of David. Um, so how many of you guys have ever had a, had a tree cut down in your yard just by show of hands? Had that happen or you cut it down yourself, whatever, your lumberjack, cool. Um, so we, we had that done in our house once. There were several times we had a tree cut down. And I remember the last time we had a live oak in our front yard that was just like, it had been dying for years, and it was, it was just time for it to go before it fell on the house, one of those type deals. So we had the guys come out, they, they cut it down, ground the stump, got the ground all nice and flat. And then about two, three weeks later, what happens? If, you had a, if you've had a tree cut down, you know, it's like the roots like, refuse to admit defeat, right? It's like, no, we're still doing this thing. And so all, you get all these little saplings in like this perfect circle around where the tree was just coming up out of the ground. You're like, come on, man, who are you kidding, right? And so that's, that's the picture, though, of, of what that, that word means. It's like the kingdom of God, the Davidic kingdom at its height, it has been toppled. It has been mowed down, right? There's nothing left of it. They've been carried off to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. But God has promised to raise up a shoot or a root or a branch. That's why you see, it seems to mean three different things. But it's just like, a, imagine a little sapling coming up out of the root of David, right? There was this prophecy that an heir of David, someone from David's line, would come as a great king and restore the kingdom of God against all odds when it looked like there was no hope left. So God sets before Joshua the high priest a stone with an inscription of this branch. So Zechariah's thinking, okay, the branch, the shoot of David, this is coming. Now why a stone? Well, we don't have quite as much information about what this stone was. Some people say maybe it was like a cornerstone for the temple. I don't, I don't really buy that because the foundation of the temple had already been laid. Plus, if you look at Joshua and the vestments, there's all these inscribed stones that are symbolic and, and are a part of his attire, right? And so my thinking on it is this is probably some sort of a stone that would go on his turban or somewhere on his chest. But instead of inscribing the names of the sons of Israel on it, what's inscribed on this stone is this branch. See, okay, a stone with this branch of the, this root of David, this Messiah king who's coming. And the stone is also said or the branch, it's kind of unclear, it's said to have seven eyes. Well, where else do we see this? Where else do we see the branch or shoot of David being described as having seven eyes? Well, we see it in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5 says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. So if you study this, just this passage in Revelation, likely the, the seven horns, seven being the number of perfection, just means the horn was similar of a military power, so he is taking over, right? This is like, that's the king part. But then the seven eyes likely meant God's awareness of, of, of all the churches and all his people in all the world. Again, Likely Zechariah had no clue what this was referring to, that he, he just saw the branch and thought, oh, it's the shoot of David, this messianic king. But in reality, this stone with the branch and seven eyes was, reporting, was pointing not just to this new and better king who was to come, but to the new and better sacrificial lamb who would be and do the thing that God's people had always longed for. Joshua is not worthy, even with his new clothes, to, to bear the iniquity of this entire nation. So God gives him a new jewel to add to his clothes. And on that jewel is inscribed this branch, this root of David, this messianic king, who would not only be a king, but also a lamb, to truly bear the sins of a people in a way that Joshua, as high priest, never could. The next verse says, For behold, on this stone I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, the branch declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So we see Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Root of David, the better sacrifice, the better king, being held out before Zechariah as the true hope of the nation. So that's the event we kind of see transpire and it's to kind of take us back. Remember this whole time Satan is there accusing him because of his filth. And again, he's, he's right. As he was before God came in and removed his filth and clothed him in this alien righteousness outside of himself, before that happened, Satan was absolutely right. And Satan makes the same accusations against us today. Satan loves to point at us and go, not worthy, full of sin, filthy, unable to serve, unable to stand. But he stops there. He loves, he loves to talk to us about Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, following the course of the prince of darkness, right? Turning away from God, that's who they are. But if you keep reading in Ephesians you see, as beautiful of an answer to our problem as Joshua had to his. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice again, who is doing all the verbs here, right? Who's, 
who's doing the thing to make us alive together, right? It says that though we were dead, though we were standing condemned because of the filth of our sin, God, because of the great love which he had through the work of Jesus, made God made us alive together in Christ. God raised us up. God seated us in the heavenly places that all the action, all the things being done to make us worthy to come before God are not done by us, but something God is doing for us and to us in the person of Jesus. Now, we kind of skip verses 6 and 7, and if you read those in Zechariah 3, you are going to see some imperatives. So, so then, now that God has done this, go and do these things. Go walk in this way. But the making of him holy and righteous and worthy is all done by God and God alone. There's a quote that I think we've shared here at Crosspoint before by Sinclair Ferguson, but in light of this idea, he says this, The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. That the only thing we bring to the table here is the filth of our clothes that allows God to remove those from us and restore us with pure vestments. Third observation is like Joshua, we are accused of Satan, by Satan, of being unworthy. Revelation chapter 12, it, it describes Satan as, as, again, the same word, the accuser. And it says he stands night and day accusing God's people before him. That's a lot of what he does and how he tempts us. Is he just accuses us, but he only tells half the truth. You may know what this is like. You may have heard it on Sundays. You may have heard it this Sunday. It's just an easy example here at a worship service where you, you come in, you, know, you say hi to a few people, you, you sit down, the songs begin to play, you begin to sing and you're thinking about the words and something in the back of your mind says, come on, really, really, you're going to, you're going to stand here and sing about how much you love the Lord and, and how much he means to you, Man, I think we all know how you talk to your kids this week, Right? I mean, I, I saw what you did last night. You, you are covered in filth. Who, who are you kidding? You don't belong here. Put, put your hands down. Oh, yeah, give me a break. This is not who you are. You are covered in filth. You have no, you have no place here worshiping God as though you have any right to be here. He loves to stop there at verse 3. And the, the answer, like, like Joshua, we stand there and in some ways he's saying those things and he's, he's right, right? I mean, yeah, I, I did talk to my kids that way. Yeah, I did do that thing last night. I did whatever it was. Like, I'm not worthy to be here, but we have an answer. But God... Because of the great love which he had for us, made us alive together with Christ. He took away the filth that covered us because of our sin and clothed us in an alien righteousness. Took something outside of ourselves that we did not create, that we did not earn, that we had nothing to do with. And covered us in, us in that, making us worthy and able to stand before God and to serve God. 
So the last thing we could say is like Joshua, the answer for us is not to, not to contend and compete, right? It's, it's not for us to go, yeah, you know, I've, I've got some filth here and there's, I'm not looking so good, but man, I look a lot better than that guy, right? I mean, I, sure, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not saying I'm standing here pure and holy or anything, but man, I'm, I'm doing all right. Can you imagine if, if Joshua had said that? Can you imagine if like, they took away the, started to take away the filth, the, 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 the filthy garments, and he was like, whoa, 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 hang on now, hang on. I mean, don't get me wrong, like, it, yeah, it's a little dirty, but, man, if God doesn't want to accept me like this, then it's not that bad. One of the lies that our culture tells us is that, hey, God's, God's okay with that, you know? He's, he's not going make to a, make a big deal about our sin, right? He, he understands. He's not, he's not a, a judgmental God. And when we believe that lie, we start to operate in this way of, yeah, God, I know I've, I've got some stuff, but hey, look, I don't, if God doesn't just, if God can't just accept me, like I'm a pretty good person. If he can't just accept me on my own merits, then I, I really don't want anything to do with him because if we're not careful, we begin to, we fail to see the, the extreme holiness and righteousness of God, that he does not tolerate sin in his presence. That, that when, when Joshua stands there covered in filth, God does not just go, it's, it's okay, come on, it's fine, I'll overlook it. No, he removes the filth and clothes him in an alien righteousness. And we know on this side of the cross that all that happened through the work of Jesus. We could say that the real danger we face now that we understand and know the story of the gospel and Jesus dying for our sin, is not the unworthiness itself, but our unwillingness to acknowledge it. That oftentimes the real danger we face is not the, the filth of our sin and, and, and that's existence. Jesus has made a way for that to be taken care of, but the real problem can be our refusal to acknowledge that and cry out to God to save us by his grace and not by our own merit. So if we look at this text today, that there's not just a lot of, like a real practical Monday through Friday, go and do type application. Instead, it's remember and trust, right? It's confess and cling. It's as we come in here on Sunday mornings or as you have your quiet time or whatever it is throughout the week and you come before the Lord in prayer or try to do things that honor him, it's, we have to remember that as we do those things, we don't do them by our own merits. We don't, we don't come here on a Sunday morning thinking, yeah, man, I, 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 did, I did pretty good at following the Lord this week and now I'm, I'm glad I, I get to be here because I've been doing good things. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take out your, your elements, and we're going to do a little bit out of, out of order today, but go ahead and open the, the bread and the juice there. Instead, what we do here on Sunday mornings what ought to be going through our minds at some point as we worship is the idea that, yeah, like Joshua, we we stood condemned 
And we had no way to make ourselves worthy to come before God, to stand before him, and to serve him. But God, because of the great love which he had, sent his son Jesus to take away our iniquity, that he took the filthiness of our sin and set it upon Jesus, that Jesus' body would be broken for that sin, that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Outside of ourselves, despite our inability to pull ourselves out of this situation, God stepped in and made us holy. Jesus' body broken for our sins that we could stand before him and serve Take a knee. And his blood spilt for our forgiveness. Take and drink. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for just the similarities we see here. That you, for hundreds, thousands of years, have been pointing us to a hope outside of ourselves that by your mercy and goodness, you would make a way to remove the filth of our sin and cover us in your righteousness. And I pray that we would embrace that and remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.